Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, that's enough tears, puns everyone. We're out of lockdown and back into tears. Can anyone tell the difference? They can in Wales, where closing time is now 6pm. If Boris Johnson needs Labour support to get his measures past rebellious Tories this week, where does that leave the supposedly unassailable Prime Minister? The government is cutting Britain's foreign aid budget, just as we're about to become even more friendless in the world. How did foreign aid become such a political punchback? And will the government be able to get away with turning development aid into a hard sell for British trade? Plus, has the shattering experience of Covid changed the debate around a universal basic income? And why are we so desperate for a normal Christmas? Get yourself a substantial meal of a scotch egg and enjoy today's bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. A couple of reminders before we start. Firstly, our annual Christmas market is open for one week only at podmarket.co.uk. We've got mugs, t-shirts, face coverings and even baby grows from The Bunker, our sister podcast, Oh God, What Now? And even some vintage Romaniacs merchandise too. Yes, you can dress your newborn in a Bunker baby outfit. The store's open until Sunday the 6th of December. UK delivery is guaranteed for Christmas. Check out podmarket.co.uk. Secondly, we're doing another live Zoom on Thursday, the 17th of December at 8 p.m. It's exclusive to Patreon backers of The Bunker and Oh God, What Now? So if you're a backer, there's an invite in your inbox. If not, search Patreon Bunker Podcast to sign up and see the panel in full Christmassy mood. That's enough adverts. Let's meet the panel. Hello to the CEO of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Hello, Naomi. Hello, hello. So it's deja vu all over again. It's Groundhog Naomi. What's going on in the Brexit (laughs) talks as of five past five on Monday? Uh, Well, talks resumed over the weekend after initial fears that the EU wouldn't travel to London for them. Um, We heard that the UK rejected a compromise on fishing that would have allocated 15 to 18% of fishing quotas back to the EU. So now really does feel like crunch point due to the legal deadline, obviously, of the 1st of January and a need to ratify any deal ahead of that. The only significant update we've had today at all really has been that Angela Merkel has said that EU governments are now getting very frustrated over the lack of progress today. And I basically just commend everyone to listen to Alex's Start the Week podcast from Monday as he delves into it all very well. It's like falling into a black hole, isn't it, where time dilates and slows down. So you never actually end up inside the black hole. It's oh, just, I'd, I'd love know. to fall into a black hole right now. <laughs> yes. Anything, get, get me out of here. Like interstellar, yes. Also with us, we have the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Fambula. Hello, Miata. Hi. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. Great to be on. Good. Uh, So your New Economics Foundation colleagues published a report last week on the cost of transferring data across national borders if we don't get this deal with the EU. What did it find? Because this is not something that's being talked about, even though the digital economy is vast. Yeah, I mean, the digital economy is huge, and this has been really below the radar. And essentially, at the end of the transition period, the legal basis by which we can transfer uh, data across borders changes. And that happens with or without a deal. And essentially, uh, the thing that the uh, report points out is in order for the UK and the EU to be able to transfer data, um, the UK is going to need essentially permission from the EU um, or for the EU to say that essentially we've got adequate protection and data security measures in place. Now, this is a technical thing. It should be a no-brainer. But the worry is that in the context of a no-deal, if things get pretty acrimonious, it is not guaranteed that the EU will grant us this adequacy decision, which would essentially scupper our abilities to trade. And the cost of that that we model for businesses would be between 1 billion and 1.6 billion, which is absolutely vast. Uh, So it's just another dimension in which the stakes are incredibly high for this. Does this mean in practical terms that you, you you know you won't be able to buy and sell digital goods in the way in the way you have been up to now just as you can't you know it's it's become so difficult with physical goods that certain small and medium businesses have just decided to, to shut up shop you know importing and exporting books to Europe for instance yeah, that's exactly what it means. And the implications of it are absolutely vast. Um, there are probably workarounds, but they're incredibly expensive and bureaucratic. And the digital trade is a huge part of our trade, and this would hugely undermine it. So more reasons for us to be worried. Is, it, is this on anyone's radar? Is anything being done about this? Or are we still concentrating on bloody fish? 
we are still concentrating on fish, <laughs> it appears. Uh, it, it isn't on uh, people's radars. I think those that are, you know, in the weeds of uh, the digital economy and the technicalities around it are very aware of it. Uh, but it hasn't really reared its head in terms of the political dimension. But it's incredibly important because a huge part of our economy is either enabled or, you know, fundamentally predicated uh, on data access and data transfer. You heard it here first, I bet you wish you didn't. Completing the panel, it's writer, commentator, actor, cook, singer, a man of many parts, most of them working, Alex Andreo. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Alex. So now we've got a vaccines minister. It's Nadim Zahawi. He's the man tasked with rolling out the vaccine. What, what do we know about him? You know, he's the co-founder of YouGov, isn't he? Is he a dependable chap to get the country immune to COVID? I have a, a, a major antipathy towards Zahawi, actually, because he, <laughs> se- he seems to be the, the person that's always used by the Tory party to knock any accusation of bigotry. And I mm. can't think that that's a coincidence. So he was the, he was the main responder when Baroness Worsi uh, was complaining of Islamophobia in the party. He was the main defender of Vote Leave's line that freedom of uh, movement lets in dangerous terrorists. You know, he was defending Trump for his fine people comment, comments, although he did complain when Trump introduced the Muslim ban because it impacted him directly. So, um, so he, <laughs> he does seem to understand discrimination when it impacts him personally, just not more generally. Um, most recently, he defended Robert Jenrick for the sort of money for uh, permits scandal. He had to repay uh, in 2013 expenses, thousands of pounds worth of expenses, which he claimed for electricity for his stables. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I, let, let me just, I don't think he's someone that is overly tortured by integrity or burdened by scruples obviously the most important thing that uh, on the agenda is making sure that there are union jacks printed on the oxford vaccine ampules <laughs> this has been the most important thing what yeah, else is on his to-do list apart from putting lots of stickers no, that, that'll do that'll do just mm-hmm. inject that britishness straight in my veins the Guardian reports that the government is recruiting influencers to advocate for the vaccine, which does for once sound like a good idea. So can Scarlett from Gogglebox turn the tide against, you know, no 5G vaccines, Dave 28 on Twitter? Maybe. Who knows? Um, we, we live in a fairly superficial aid. I, I fear that nothing can turn the tide, the tide they started that, you know, it's now generational. They've created a whole chunk of people who distrust science and distrust expertise and people in any sort of position of authority. So they rode that tiger. It may just rip their heads off. I'm taking a wild guess that you might want to get the vaccine anyway, but which uh, significant respected figure would persuade you? Ryan Reynolds, I think. I presume you mean. <laughs> I, pre- I presume you mean he will be there giving me the vaccine. I, <laughs> okay, I all right, can, calm down. I picture that now. You didn't have to get completely undressed, Mister Andre. <laughs> <laughs> Miata, how about you? Which uh, which uh, big thing will persuade you to get the vaccine? Not that you need persuading. Do, do you know, Mark Rashford. He's a man of the hour. Why oh, okay, not? <laughs> absolutely trustworthy man. Naomi, what about you? Okay, right. We can't have three blokes being the persuaders on this. So I'll say Alice Roberts, Professor Alice Roberts, good scientist, good humanist. She'll be the woman for me. I'm going for Tom Baker because that's the kind of shallow person I am. So discussions are ongoing about what Labour will do. Will Labour vote for uh, a deal? Will it vote against it? Will it abstain? What's your reading on that? Okay, well, I'll try and be brief on this, but A, we don't yet know if there will be a deal. B, if there is, we don't know how uh, how it will come to Parliament, if it will, for a vote. C, we don't know how Labour will whip that vote. And D, we don't know how many of the PLP will rebel if Starmer whips to vote for the deal rather than abstain. So given there's much that we don't precisely know, what gossip have we heard, I hear you ask? Well, first off, the Internal Markets Bill, remember that, is due back next week. And in it, those egregious, limited and specific rule-breaking clauses that would be removed in the event of a deal. So the general view is that Johnson would bring a bill back to Parliament on the Brexit deal on the 7th of December. It's probably going to be one big implementation bill that is Cabinet Office-led, and it'll start in the Commons on the 7th, meaning it goes to the Lords on the 14th, meaning that there could be a ping-pong with those more pro-EU lords and, of course, the Commons ping-ponging it back week commencing the 20th. 
And we're hearing that the government comms around it is going to be, well, you can all go home for Christmas early if you back it. Also, and this is a really crucial bit, listeners may remember that MPs decided not to give themselves ratification powers on an EU deal. So if within 21 days Parliament hasn't approved it, the government can just lay a statement to the House to say it is ratifying the deal anyway. So how Labour votes is all about the signal it wants to send to the country because how it votes can't derail the deal anyway. So by abstaining, Labour won't send a signal that it prefers no deal because, of course, it doesn't. But it will send a signal that this is a thin deal and represents a failure of negotiating craft that seriously limits Britain's ambitions for itself. Um, And it'll do little, if anything, to level up the red wall. And Starmer needs to lay the failure for all of that squarely at this government's feet time and again. His enemies are making a grave mistake and he shouldn't interrupt them. And that means he should whip to abstain. Lockdown is over if you want it. Boris Johnson announced the return to tiers last week, but with 99% of England placed at either tier two or three, will many of us notice the difference? Lockdown two seems to have been a success in containing the virus. Cases were down by a third, but Tory backbenchers are increasingly restive, claiming that it's unfair that areas of low infection should go into higher tiers just because they're close to COVID hotspots. Parliament is voting on the new regime on Tuesday. The Prime Minister may need Labour votes to get it through. What's going to happen? Naomi, is the COVID research group versus the government really about COVID or is it about jockeying for control in the Conservative Party? That's a very good question, Andrew. And I think what it's exposed is that the very same MPs who are against the lockdown because of its negative impact on businesses and jobs are very often the same ones that proposed Brexit and the hardest of Brexiters at that, regardless of its very negative impact on businesses and jobs. So it's kind of difficult to say what does drive these people, because it certainly isn't consistency. And at the time of recording, the government had only just published its lockdown impact statistics, which you might remember the the COVID research group have been saying they wanted to see. Now, we've not had time to go through them properly, but I'm told actually there isn't much in there on the economic impact uh, and that that the CRG will be disappointed on that. But various independent statistics show that while parts of the economy might bounce back relatively quickly if we get a vaccine this spring, the long-term pain of failing to secure a decent trade deal is going to be bigger and felt for much longer. I suspect that some of the ERG are very uh, wary of Johnson going a bit soft on the EU deal. And so they're letting him know that they're sharpening their knives and showing that they have more than enough numbers to defeat him and install somebody like Sunak should he push them a little bit too far. It could be an odd week of the government depending on Labour votes twice, or at least taking notice of Labour votes twice. Do we know what Labour's position on this is yet? Has it crystallised? Well, people could be forgiven for not knowing, which is part of Labour's problem. Um, And it's not entirely their fault, of course. It is very, very difficult to get media cut through with key messages during a pandemic and when the government has an 80-seat majority, so the media are just always concentrating on what the government's saying rather than the opposition. But they could be doing better to articulate what they want. So as far as I can tell, what they are really pushing Sunak for is an extension to the ARG, not another Tory fringe group, but the additional (laughs) restrictions group grant um, to all areas in tier three. And that grant equates to about, I think it's about £20 per person and was rolled out before lockdown 2.0 to the areas that were in the strictest tiers last time around. And Labour are now saying that some authorities in tier three are going to just face breaking point if the Chancellor doesn't extend the ARG to all of them now. So the Prime Minister wants the restrictions to last till February the 3rd. The CRG want them to end within a month. Are we back to 2019 with the ERG stroke CRG making endless demands on the government that can't ever be satisfied because <laughs> making demands is what they do? <laughs> what do you mean going back? <laughs> when have these guys ever been satisfied? Um, I think I think what's interesting is going to be how uh, everybody else votes. And as you say, whether the government is going to have to rely on Labour despite its 80-seat majority. Um, we've heard gossip today via Jess Elgott at The Guardian that the Lib Dems are not going to be supporting the vote for COVID tears. This so is if, huge. Yeah, yeah. The Lib Dems. Yeah, all a dozen of them. But if the con rebels do see their see their threats through, then the government probably will need Labour votes. Um, and to the earlier point about the vote on the EU deal, um, does Labour, Her Majesty's official opposition, want to be seen to not oppose the government twice in one week? However, I do suspect 
expect, as usual, the CRG's bark is going to be a bit worse than its bite on this one. Um, and there'll, there'll probably be some kind of concessional promise done to make them behave in time for the vote. And I don't know, maybe there'll be free scotch eggs for all at the end of the I voting lobby. <laughs> I just wish all these RGs would actually research some things instead of just like, making them out. Alex, has lockdown two been a success? I mean, obviously, depending on how we define success. Well, in terms of su- suppressing the the infections, absolutely. The REACT study figures this week uh, show conclusively that all the right indicators are moving in the right direction, and significantly so. So cases are down by a third. I, to, to be honest, uh, I... Do you know what? I can't believe we're reduced to even discussing this. You know, that, that reducing contact suppresses a contagion that spreads through contact. I mean, you know, why, why are we even talking about it? Of course lockdown works. It works, but the question that would be raised would be, are you sacrificing more by imposing the lockdown than you are saving by not imposing the lockdown? Is the argument that's advanced, isn't it? Well, the, the argument that, that is advanced, that was advanced for quite a long time, is that you can't do this indefinitely, okay? We can't keep locking down indefinitely. The second part of that malignant little sentence, by the way, is that we can't keep locking uh, down indefinitely so that a few old people and sick people don't die. That's the second part of that sentence, just to be clear. But now that there is a vaccine on the horizon, and this whole thing has become relatively time-limited, I think that argument falls on its face. Because we're not talking about indefinitely. We're talking about maybe there will be this lockdown, we'll loosen up around Christmas, there'll be another short firebreaker in January, and then another one maybe in, in late March. That is my prediction. And after that, enough people will be vaccinated, certainly the more vulnerable, so that we can go back to some sort of normality. So that's what we're talking about. If I were the government, I would just turn around and say, these are the dates that we're going to be locked down. We're going to be locked down from this date to that date at the end of January, and from this last week in March and first week in April. Because we now know how this virus behaves. We know when it is we need to interrupt it to turn the figures back into a downward trajectory. So I don't know why we're faffing around. I don't know why we're trying to appease people who are clearly never going to be appeased because they're, they're just a research group. They don't even know for what they are a research group that week. <laughs> you know, it's whatever will get them onto the news programs, as far as I can see. Miata, in the immediate term, the hospitality industry is hurting badly on this. Um, very few pubs are going to be able to reopen this week in anything like the on the scale they thought they'd be able to reopen, particularly before Christmas. The trade is going to be badly affected. How do we think that the, this industry is going to be supported? We know what it wants. Do we think it's going to be supported at the level at which it is uh, at which it's looking for? Are we going to have to accept the fact that our pubs, in particular, are going to be badly threatened for the foreseeable future and that many of them are just not going to survive. Yeah, I don't think we can underestimate the impact on the hospitality sector. And the figures that, you know, the industry itself has put out are pretty stark. Uh, so, you know, 98% of their trade is essentially in tier two and three. 7.8 billion of their trade is likely to be wiped out going into Christmas compared uh, to last year, if restrictions continue. Something like 75% of uh, pubs in tier two say that they are um, either operating at a loss or their business is no longer viable. And that rises to 94% um, in tier three. So it's pretty, pretty stark out there. And that's the hard piece of the pandemic. But, you know, I think the big lesson looking back uh, since this started is the thing that can mitigate this, in my view, completely false dichotomy that's often placed between restrictions to save lives and livelihoods is government action. You know, government intervention, when it's done and done at the scale that it needs to be done, 
can square that circle. And and the furlough scheme is a classic example of that. Without it, we'd be looking at huge levels of unemployment. Had the government not faffed around with it, we would be looking Mm. at much lower levels of unemployment that we have now. So we know that the way, particularly because there is an end in sight, because there is a vaccine now in the offing, the way in order to protect the hospitality sector is to provide sufficient support. And I think, you know, the government has some grants. Um, It's got quite a lot of loans. I suspect what it's now going to have to do is three things. Um, It needs to ensure that the furlough scheme continues because actually wages are a huge component um, of the cost uh, for uh, businesses operating. And if government can can continue to underwrite it, and, you know, my view is at the moment they've got this arbitrary March deadline completely kind of randomly picked out of the air. They should say as long as there are restrictions in place, the furlough scheme continues because that gives those businesses some certainty. The second thing which the government hasn't really contended with is uh, the cost of rents. Um, And that actually is a across the commercial sector, uh, because what we've seen is the businesses, you know, whether they're in the hospitality industry and elsewhere, have essentially just been deferring their rents and deferring their payments or taking on huge debt. And at some point, that is going to have to be resolved and dealt with. Um, And so one of the things that the government can look at is how it takes away some of the rent burden um, that uh, commercial landlords' um, uh, pubs are facing. And by the way, I'd also say they should do it for residential, uh, but but that's a side point. And then I think the final uh, piece that they will have to uh, think about is probably trying to shift uh, some of the loans that they're offering into greater grants, uh, because you're okay to borrow for one, two, maybe three, four months, uh, but essentially to be having to borrow to cover your operating costs for near on a year is really, really tough for the businesses. So I suspect the government's going to have to move some more um, if it wants to do the job of balancing the need for restrictions with keeping businesses going until they can become fully viable again. The overseas aid budget commitment has been a target for right-wing rage and resentment ever since David Cameron enshrined it in law in 2015 at 0.7% of GDP, possibly even before. It was, possibly, the only good thing Cameron ever did, and he seemed to genuinely believe in it. But it's been under relentless attack ever since with endless hostile stories in the mail and all the usual places. This summer, Boris Johnson merged the Department for International Development into the Foreign Office. And last week, Chancellor Rishi Sunak cut the commitment from 0.7% of national income to 0.5%. The policy change has prompted an angry response from some senior Tories with a fear that British influence overseas will be reduced and poverty increased. Naomi, what does this reduction in foreign aid spending say about, open quotes, global Britain, close quotes? Well, indeed, uh, it says... Every island for itself, guys, jog on. Um, We've gone from being a standard bearer of the rule of law to a country that flouts it. Uh, We've gone from being a leader in aid to one who can't be relied on when the going gets tough. And we've gone from being a country that others trust to one I with suspicion. The argument that's advanced against that, of course, is that the economy here in Britain is struggling. Why should we be spending our, our money elsewhere? That slightly uh, is undermined by the idea that all of these moves were well in train before the economy was struggling as it is at the moment. But that argument has a lot of traction out there, doesn't it? Um, it does. And, and there does seem to be quite popular support for cutting the aid budget. But why do we need to get involved in the affairs elsewhere? Well, because What is the point of humans if there is no humanity? Because we live in an interconnected world, as COVID fucking 19, as Alex calls it, has so beautifully demonstrated for us. When a human sneezes halfway around the world, the the whole of the human race can catch a cold. Uh, And because a problem in Africa today can quickly become a problem in Britain tomorrow. You know, with famine, war, disease and drought comes mass displacement of people and and then migration follows. Aid helps to alleviate those problems in country, helping people stay where they are rather than needing to flee to find the very basic fundamentals of staying alive. And aid and, and particularly aid that helps to educate girls has such a proven and profound impact on improving economic growth and and outcomes for everybody. Women who can read, for instance, know that the sign on the door of the clinic that they've walked 20 miles with their sick baby to get to says, hang on back in five minutes. The, Mm. The mother that can't read that turns around and walks 20 miles back and her, her baby may die. You know, experts are saying that the reduction in UK aid budget means that upwards of 3 million women could now lose out on access to nutrition 
Um, so we, we, you know, we, we, we are all connected and, and we do need to do everything that we can to support other countries. It, it's been interesting that the pushback against this hasn't been exclusively from outside the Conservative Party. Do you expect there to be uh, rebellion and pushback against this in the House or is this just another 80-seat majority firewall issue? I've not got a clear steer on the, the whip counts um, on this particular vote, but the strength of anger certainly is real and I wonder if they won't do a fudge of saying it's just a temporary cut, which I think is what Tom Tugendhat um, has been uh, pushing for in order to get it through so that they can fund the extra for defence that Johnson, of course, has ring-fenced. Back to the point we were making in the earlier section and, and as Miata put it, you know, this is uh, around an absolute failure of our government on both our health and wealth. They've handled the virus and the economy so disastrously by any measure for uh, a so-called developed Western democracy. It just means that we have less cash and our government has less inclination to help others out. Um, and, and I think that the, the, the backbench Tories that are sympathetic to our position on this um, are beginning to understand that. Miata, I mean, the, you know, the implications for you know, other countries, the countries that we've worked with there are, are, are quite clear. What, what's the economic background to this? I mean, is, is it a purely symbolic move or does it involve significant amounts of money? It, I mean, it does uh, involve significant amounts of money. Um, and I think the two things to say is the amount of aid that we were giving was already going down uh, because our uh, overall pot, our GDP has gone down. So it would have been a smaller total value. And then in addition to that, they've put this cut in place. And you know, the thing I say is if we think the economic hit that we're facing is profound in terms of its impact on people's uh, livelihoods uh, and their lives, it is doubly profound for many in the global south. This pandemic is really, really hurting people. And the idea that at this very time when, you know, you think about the, the scale of the pandemic in somewhere like Brazil or in somewhere like um, South Africa, and the idea that we would step away from support, I think is just hugely objectionable. And it's incredibly short-sighted, you know, because the point that Naomi's made, we live in an interconnected world. And so, you know, it's not just the moral case for helping other countries out because we should. It's also what happens in those countries will rebound on us here. Uh, so if you if you don't care about the moral argument, you should care about the self-interest argument. Um, and so it is absolutely the wrong time uh, to be doing this. Um, and, and it will have real impacts on people's lives. There is an argument that it's politically popular, though. And according to YouGov, two-thirds of Britain support a reduction in the foreign aid budget. Um, unsurprisingly, 92% of Conservatives favoured this move. Is it just following retail politics, though, just simply, simply following the uh, the polling or as i mentioned earlier there's been an awful lot of softening of the ground of this over in, in, in past years you know has, has the pitch been rolled for this as it were yeah look it's easy of course it's easy um and, and they knew that when they did it they knew that all the kind of progressive liberals would be up in uproar and the public would think that actually kind of made sense because charity starts at home um but but, but you know, that's still short-sighted uh, because, you know, in the end, we do have a responsibility and a duty uh, to other countries in the world, uh, in the globe. Um, we have that historically, but also we have that going forward. Um, and in the end, we are an interconnected world. We have a duty of responsibility and we need to adhere to that. You know, I'll come back to the fact that if things are hard elsewhere, it will reverberate in some way. So it might be popular short term but it is still the wrong long-term decision alex there's a definite culture war aspect to this when you google daily mail and international aid budget the string of knocking stories is is remarkable and one particularly notorious one scoffed that Difford was funding ethiopia's spice girls when in fact the girl band yegna that was being funded by by you know grants from the uk sang about very hard issues including domestic violence and forced marriage it was a, a great way to get genuinely useful mm. uh, information to people in in a way that you know that they're likely to receive it uh, with with an open mind have pro development people failed to make a case for uh, you know our development role and to make a case against knocking stories like this look it's a soft target it's an easy target and so you have to accept there's going to be a certain amount of flack when the money you give goes to projects that are that are easy to twist into newsworthy fun stories but it's if you're just doing what 
uh, 92% of conservatives want and the Daily Mail wants, then you're a poor politician and you're a poor public servant because you're not leading anything. You're just following what people like already. That is the essence of populism. The essence of good politics and good polity is to do the right thing and convince people that it is the right thing. That is a good politician. Not someone that just looks at a poll and goes, yeah, all right, we'll do that. And at a time when we're withdrawing from the EU and we're really frittering so much of our soft power away, I mean, to to start talking about laser gunboats and start trying to convert this soft power into hard power, it's just demented. Our stick is not big enough to work without a carrot. It will never be big enough. And even if it were, carrot is so much more effective. I mean, look at China. When Greece, mm. when Greece ha- ha- experienced the Eurozone cri- crisis, the first country that said it would help and genuinely did give a, a shed load of money to a lot of projects was China. They're now reaping their rewards because the Greek government looks at them very favorably when they're uh, uh, thinking of to whom they will award, uh, you know, the contracts for the new privatized ports. So, you know, the, the, the relationship is actually quite transactional. You give money to a developing country because it makes a statement. It says, we are your friends. And when it comes to business down the line, that will be remembered. This is why China is now telling to Central African nations that when it has a vaccine, it will make it available to them free of charge. They know what they're doing. And it's not like China doesn't wield a big enough stick if it wanted Mm. to. It's not like it doesn't have enough gunboats if it wanted to. It's just a much more effective and efficient way of going about it. It's a win-win. Why would any government not want a win-win? I've always been puzzled about exactly what problems these brand new aircraft carriers are supposed to solve, because when we live in a world where most national security threats are either homegrown terrorist-based or cyber-based, what do you launch your aircraft carrier against? It seems to be a strange way of moving resources. Oh, it's just, it, it, it's literally just an appeal to nativism. And I wouldn't be surprised, by the way, if none of this happens, if, if mm. none of his defence plans come to fruition because he does that he does that all the time you know he gets obsessed with a bridge between scotland and ireland then he gets obsessed with it an a airport test- in the thames yes an yeah. airport in the thames then a testing system that will test everyone twice a day or whatever nonsense yeah or he's going to have his own gps system none of this stuff ever fucking comes to anything <laughs> He's a guy who makes double-decker buses out of cardboard crates in his spare time. What do you expect? He just loves this shit. COVID has completely transformed the debate around a universal basic income. The furlough scheme has saved businesses and jobs, but over 3 million people have fallen through the cracks. So could a guaranteed income for everyone, irrespective of their circumstances, be the solution so that nobody misses out? Christine Jardin, Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh West and chair of the cross-party group on UBI, says we need to reconsider how the welfare system is configured. Hi, my name's Christine Jardin and I'm the MP for Edinburgh West. I'm a Liberal Democrat and I'm the party spokesperson on the economy, Brexit and trade. But I'm also chair of the cross-party group on UBI. I think COVID-19 and the interventions that we have seen have illustrated quite clearly that the the system we have was not prepared for an economic shock. We need to reconsider how the welfare state is configured and how we would deal more effectively with a similar situation in the future, especially the number of people who have fallen through the cracks. We need to have the same sort of approach, the same sort of vision for the 21st century as Beveridge had for the 20th century and look at the welfare state in the round and look at how we can improve it. There are lots of different types of universal basic income, but what we're talking about as Liberal Democrats is a system where everybody is 
regarded as being entitled to a basic income in the same way as there is a national minimum wage. You have a basic income to which people are entitled. With universal basic income, you would have people who were, say, carers, stay-at-home parents, who would not meet that threshold, who would have that topped up. So that's one way that you could do it. But I think it's, it's not so much that there would be a tipping point as that it's a way of guaranteeing that people have a certain level of income and standard of living. The important thing for me and for the Liberal Democrats is that we have stated as a principle that we want to move to the situation where people have the sort of security of mind, sort of belief that they will be entitled to a basic standard of living which will be ensured that if we come across a situation like this again, a pandemic like this or a financial crash like we did in 2008, 2009, people will not fall through the cracks. We will not have a situation where we have three million excluded people who've had nothing since the start of this. That's you know Some of them haven't even had universal credit. So that is a situation which we recognise is wrong. But now that we know that it's a problem, then we will look for a way of having this UBI which could ensure that it wouldn't happen again. What we need to make UBI happen is the political will by the political parties to do it. And also at the next general election for it to be part of the debate, one of the principles on which people vote. Do people want to see a universal basic income in this country? Will they vote for it? I think that is the point that we have to get to and until we do it's up to the political parties to look at whether or not they're willing to support it in the way that we as Liberal Democrats do and and bring forward a working form of universal basic income. Miata, are we closer to UBI now that uh, we've been through this COVID experience of unprecedented spending and, and government intervention? Has it made it a bit more likely? I think it has in so far as, you know, I think the pandemic has exposed just how woefully inadequate our social security system is. And if you think about it, we went into this pandemic uh, with uh, unemployment benefits as a proportion of earnings being one of the lowest across the OECD countries, uh, but critically the lowest it's been since the start of the welfare state, which is just scandalous. And I think the reality is uh, the impacts on people's livelihoods, you know, the, the increase in food bank usage, the numbers of people who are really, really struggling, um, is pretty eye-opening. You know, we, we did a bit of research um, at NEF uh, that came out today that sort of modelled um, the uh, likely economic impacts and, and the squeeze on incomes. Uh, and it's, you know, projecting that by spring, we could have 2.5 million more people who are unable to afford the basics for a decent quality of life tipping the total number of people in this country that live below this minimum income standard to a third. A third of people in this country cannot afford the basics for a decent quality of life in the sixth richest country in the world. It's an absolute scandal. And I think the pandemic has made that really, really clear. I think some of the scapegoating and stereotyping, uh, stereotyping of uh, people on benefits and welfare has been kind of broken down because actually it's become clear that any of us could need the support. Um, and so I think there will be a change. I don't think that given that we have a conservative government, they're going to wrap their arms around universal basic income. But I think what we might move towards, and that's the thing that you know our organisation is advocating, is a principle that everyone should have a living income. There is a floor below which no one can fall. Now, our view is that that should be linked to something like a minimum income standard, which means that you know rather than the 95 pounds you know a week that people are given on universal credit it's more akin to 227 pounds which would means that people could afford food they could afford to heat their homes to look after their children um, and that's where i hope the debate moves um, and tragically i think the untold hardship we are about to see going into the winter next year uh, because the economics of this is starting to really bite is the thing that we force the debate but people shouldn't have to suffer for our government to do the right thing and recognise that they need to have that insurance, that support for everyone. So I'm hopeful, uh, but tragically, it's going to be a lot of pain that gets us to where we need to get to. 
I mean, bringing it in would be on a scale to dwarf the challenge of universal credit. But there is a kind of a, in the, in the more blue skies, conservative end of things, there is an efficiency argument for UBI, isn't there? That you, if the, you take out a whole load of bureaucracy and means testing and so forth, and you simply give people money and you actually save the thing that tends to drive conservatives crazy, which is state waste. What is this? What would be the scale of making something like this happen? I mean, it, it would be pretty profound. Like, I don't think that the Conservatives will buy into the universal element of this because, you know, and actually, to be honest, I'm not sure the public will as well because, uh, you know, people always quote, you know, people in your top 5% who are earning quite a lot and would be able to claim a UBI. But I, I think what they could be persuaded by is that everyone should be guaranteed an income floor. So if your income falls below a certain level, you automatically, without having to go through hurdles, without having to uh, go through the painful bureaucratic administrative um, processes that we currently have with universal credit, you automatically get that payment. That feels right. And that's where I think we can win this argument. And then it's for progressive governments that might come after them that might decide that they want to kind of top up that basic system to get us close um, to something uh, that might be more universal. The one thing I would say, and one of the challenges in the debate um, on universal basic income, and where there is a risk, and we've got to be really careful, there is a very kind of free market version of this that says, actually, uh, what we will do is that we will individualize all support from the state. Uh, so we'll just give everyone, you know, an income, but then we don't give them universal health care or social care or, you know, I'd argue childcare or education. Uh, we get them to pay for that through that individual payment. And that is the wrong course of action. And I think some that are nervous about the universal basic income have been nervous that some on the right have been toying with it because it becomes a way in which you decimate the collective. And for me, there is a really important space for collective services. They're far more efficient, but also it's a way in which we all look after each other. You know, we all chip in and we say that there are certain things that actually make sense for us to club together to provide, like our health, like our social care, like our education. And we shouldn't and we can't lose that. So for me, the, the, the sweet spot that we're trying to get to is the principle that everyone ought to have a living income, there is an income floor below which no one should be allowed to fall, combined with really, really healthy package of universal basic services that means that actually the fundamental things that we all rely on, our education, our health, our housing, is provided to everyone that needs it. I mean, I think it's also worth remembering that according to a study that's been much cited done by Oxford University, that 47% is the percentage of existing jobs that are likely to be um, automated away with the help of technology within the next two decades. You know, according to this paper, you, you flip a coin and call heads or machines to see if your job is going to exist in 20 years. And with so little serious funding going into retraining people, something like a UBI may become uh, a much talked about issue at elections in years to come. Finally, why are we so desperate for a normal Christmas? It's all well and good allowing the country to mix for five days during Christmas, but according to Public Health England, this may cost us an additional month in a January lockdown. Is the government in danger of throwing away the gains of the autumn just to get a picture of Boris Johnson in a Santa costume on the front of the sun? Yeah, so the government's desperate to make Christmas as normal as possible, even if it risks that extra month. Is this responsible or do they, you know, do they have any alternative? I think it's a really hard one. I mean, I, I understand the argument that says people are going to want to see their friends, their loved ones, so better to put kind of restrictions and parameters around that rather than the free-for-all. But I do think it's really ris risky. And when you listen to the scientists saying that we're likely to see another spike as a consequence of easing of restrictions over December, that means we're going to be in lockdown for further or likely to go into another national lockdown. It is quite hard to reconcile. I mean, I think it's a. I think people's views on this is almost personal. My view is we're nearly there. We're nearly there with the vaccine. Yeah. Let's just hunker down. Let's get through this Christmas. There are other religious ceremonies, you know, religious festivals that have been put to the side because of the pandemic. You know, no one was talking about restrictions for Diwali, uh, for mm -hmm. example. So, you know, I, I think we just have to hold on for a bit longer and then have one heck of a party uh, come next summer and a massive Christmas next year. 
Alex, before we recorded the podcast, you were saying that uh, you think that there's far more going on behind this than simply uh, the government trying to look generous, that actually they are stuck in a pattern of behaviour where the country's going to do what it wants and they, they have to position themselves around that yeah. rather than attempt to shape it. I, I think that's exactly right. I think they've been told by their behaviour scientists that people are going to break lockdown rules over Christmas anyway. So they're trying to engineer a situation where the virus numbers and the transmission rates are as low as possible before that period and where they can then appear generous and go, yay, we saved Christmas, knowing that actually they... If they hadn't, people would just break the rules anyway. And that's quite an important psychological uh, Rubicon to cross, you know, to say, stuff the government. I'm not going to follow the rules. So they, it's very smart to try and avoid that at all costs. But, you know, as to uh, Christmas in general, I, I don't know that I've ever had a normal Christmas. You know, I've, I've, I've had Christmases which are sort of far enough in the past for the details to become fuzzy so that it's all soft focus and can become idealized in my head. But if I think back to the detail, there was always some drama, some underlying tension, some issue. Someone had died, someone couldn't make it. You know, we're under so much pressure nowadays to lead perfect lives, to be thin and successful, to post photos of our food and our and our cats and actually i would very much like christmas to become a day when we're allowed to be imperfect when you know when we're allowed to be slobs and not post photos of our dinner and on instagram i think that would be a, a jolly good thing it's been interesting how the the, the the kind of gulf between the you know the public conversation about it, and not just in in politics, but in things like you know TV adverts and you know what they're talking about on Five Live and stuff, has been this idea that there is this national kind of urge and need, desperation for there to be a proper Christmas, whatever that is. And yet, when you talk to people in your own family, they all say things like, "Well, you know, uh, we'll, we'll do it next year," or "Don't worry yeah, about exactly. it," or "Don't strain yourself," "Don't pack yourself onto a train," you know, "Don't put yourself out." And it's like I don't understand. Why why it's presented to us as an absolute necessity when maybe maybe it's just my family circle i don't know but but people seem a lot more willing to put i'll tell you why in a very in one sentence because if they don't within a week there will be the christmas research group of tory <laughs> of tory backbench mps and there will be about 110 of them I tell you what, Naomi, we've had a, at least we've had a year off from the war on Christmas, which is usually raging by now, isn't it? You're not allowed to say Christmas anymore. You're allowed to say it this year to say when we're going to have a proper one. You're not a fan, are you? You're not a you're a Christmas denier. I, I, yeah, a bit, I am a bit bar humbug on it, and I think um, Alex nailed it when he said uh, it's because it largely puts too much pressure on people to be happy, to spend money, to see people that perhaps they don't like very much, and it's stoked up as being this family occasion. But you know what? Lots of people don't have. A typical family or many relatives or they don't want to see the ones that they do have and that makes them you know sad and it makes me feel sad for them and it shines a spotlight on their lack of conformity to the socially accepted version of the family unit um, and of course it's also got a religious element which is fine but means absolutely nothing to me and generally I just you know recoil from the pressure of it all and the tweeness and, and this conformity but also Christmas in the northern hemisphere happens in winter and I'm also not a fan of winter. Uh, so you can add my seasonal depression to the mix of why I can't stand bloody Christmas. But you know what? You know, in 20 years' time, I suspect that the Christmas is between, let's say, 2010 and 2020. We'll all have merged into one for most people. We'll be arguing, did that happen in 2012 or was it 2014? This Christmas is the one that everyone will remember. Actually. I thought you were going to say in in twenty years' time, climate change will mean that it's warm at Christmas. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were yeah, going to say, too, and then you'll have a smile on your face. Throw another prawn on the Barbie, love. <laughs> Well, there was an argument that we should do Christmas in summer because that will well, exactly. uh, pretend to be Australia. But then the Australians have to do it in winter, serve them right. But look, look, all the way through 2020, the public have been more pro-lockdown than Parliament. And in fact, as we've been recording, YouGov have just released another poll asking people about a third national lockdown. Would they support it? 67% of Britons say they would, just 27% wouldn't. And I think everyone would have been okay with the government saying something like, look, we can't unlock much for Christmas. But I tell you what we've done. We've added a 4X 
extra bank holidays to the diary in the spring once the vaccine is you know being rolled out more and I know that I'd much rather have time off when the weather is warmer than I would over Christmas I think everyone would have been okay with that we come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. The books, films, telly, music, games, anything that gives them breathing space from the hectic world of politics. Naomi, what's your diversion of choice this week? I've just binged the old TV series of Le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Alec Guinness, and it is just superb. <laughs> I've watched great, it about it? three or four times now uh, with a couple of year gaps in between. It just gets better every single time. And it's such an antidote. And, and just the only thing I'd really love to say about it is that because it's about a group of spies at the top of MI6 whose careers are coming to an end, the cast was all pretty old at the time of filming and all but a couple of them uh, have long since died, you know, decades ago. And it's actually really nice to see such a full cast of older people um, who have honed their craft over decades and it's on Amazon Prime if anyone else would like to watch it. I think if you looked on IMDb you'd find that they were all about 45 and they looked that way because it was 30 years ago 40 years ago they all smoked their pants Alex how about you? Uh, My partner just moved in and uh, so we've been engaging in some serious nesting Um, (laughs) but you know it's the first time that I've been denied the luxury of a trip to a well-known Scandinavian story. If they want me to name them, they can fucking well pay me. Um, <laughs> so we've been doing it by by ordering loads of stuff online and putting up shelves and you know through a well known jungle named giant. And if they want me to name them, they can fucking well pay me. <laughs> Did they deliver the meatballs as well as everything else? They delivered everything. They, they, you can get everything delivered. It's unbelievable. Welcome to the 21st century. Miata, how about you? What are you diverting yourself with? So The Crown. Um, interestingly, ah. I, I've never watched it before, and I started watching it um, about two weeks ago. Uh, so I'm back at sort of series one, um, and <laughs> I've become obsessed. Uh, and I've literally been binge-watching it uh, every sort of spare moment, which is quite nice. It's a nice diversion. Do you need a, a, a warning beforehand that it's fiction, as we were told this week? It's really it does break it. They do it really well because there's just enough. Uh, there's just enough research and history in it to kind of reel you in. So I, I, I can see why the royals are as uh, distressed as they are because I think a lot of people will uh, be watching it and assuming it's a documentary. It's anti-monarchist propaganda, apparently. Is this what we pay our six ninety nine to Netflix for? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, my escape route is I'm, I'm not as high-flown as any of you lot. Mine is a new album by High Contrast, who are the, well, it's one guy, and it's jungle. It's like, it's clever jungle. It's sophisticated jungle that does not in any way uh, shortchange you on the raviness. The album's called Notes from the Underground. It's the most exciting thing I've heard all week, and it's been rattling my windows since I got hold of a copy, and it's coming out at the end of the week. So give that a go. So between The Crown, High Contrast, uh, Ticket Taylor Soldier Spy, and Fix It Up Ikea Shells, we've got you in every possible direction so that's the end of this week's bunker thank you to our panel naomi smith thanks for having me alex andreo thank you and miata fanbrelle thanks for having me we'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily and the full length show this time next week don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes you can also back us on the crowdfunding platform patreon just see our twitter or facebook or search patreon bunker podcast and if you back us you will get the fabled shout outs on the show and here are some of them now And best wishes from me to John, Doug Winter and Nick Harris. And a huge thank you from me to Mike Allen, Duncan Parkinson and David Ravji-Smith. A big thanks from me to Richard Belly, Matthew and Bernard Hughes. And finally, hello and best wishes from me to Kate Levy, Simon and Katie Marshall. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Niata Farnbiller, Alex Andreu and Naomi Smith. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yalama Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.